and uh, I just remember thinking what had happened. I had felt the power of God's word change my life. It just changed me. And then I remember um, thinking, gosh, if this happened in me, maybe God could use me for that to happen in others. So that was just like, it lived up to the hype for me. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and this is episode 201. So the episode that you're about to hear is a really great, really stimulating, really encouraging conversation that I had with John Tyson back in the summer of 2020. I know that that feels like it was a lifetime ago, but now that it's December 2021, it's about 18 months. But uh, here's what we're doing at the show for the month of December. Uh, We're actually taking a month off from new content, from new interviews or new workshops being broadcast. And we're kind of going deep into the archives and pulling out some of the episodes that, you know, I really think are worth reintroducing to people. So last week we heard from Connor Berry. Uh, Now we're going to hear from John Tyson. And for the next two weeks, there's going to be some more rebroadcasts. So in this conversation that I got to have with Pastor John, uh, we speak about like learning from the best of the various traditions and groupings um, that John has come through in the Christian church in order to really embody theology that can't be dismissed and power that can't be denied. Uh, We speak about the various like formative influences in his life and how that shaped his ministry and his preaching today. And we speak about a course that he was working on back then called Preaching in a Secular Age. Well, that course uh, has kind of changed and morphed and has turned into something slightly different called the art of teaching. So I'm going to turn you over to John. He's going to say hello and then also let you know about what um, this initiative has actually transformed into or come out as, uh, which is the art of teaching. So I'm going to pass you over to John. And then after that, the interview from 2020 is going to play. All right. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's Word. Well, a massive hello to everybody listening to the Expositors Collective. It's John Tyson here. Hey, wanted to let you know about something that John Mark Comer and I have been working on for a while, which is an Art of Preaching Masterclass. Uh, John Mark is one of my closest mates, and we, over the years, have talked back and forth about what it means to preach faithfully uh, in our cultural moment. And so we got together to try and design a preaching course that we wish we had access to over the years. In it, we talk about exegesis, commentary, spiritual formation, preaching secularism, how to illustrate, pray, read, and teach to actually change people's lives. We all know the scriptures are timeless living and active, but we want our generation to have, like Leslie Newbegin talked about, a genuine missionary encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can find out more information about this at artofteaching.co. We also have some live events on the East Coast, the West Coast, a couple of smaller retreats, but just a note to say, I appreciate you guys and thanks so much for listening in. 
Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and today's guest is born and raised in the great nation of Australia, uh, moved to the U.S. when he was 20 and has been in New York City for the past 15 years planting churches. Uh, first, the Trinity Grace Church, and then now recently planting a new church uh, with the name of Church of the City, New York. In addition, it's long, be patient. In addition to pastoring in the challenging environment of Hell's Kitchen, he's a pretty prolific as an author. Uh, the most recent and forthcoming book, Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise, that's coming out soon. He's a bit of a podcaster uh, with the Altars podcast about revivals of the American Northeast, as well as, I think, the well-named Fathers Collective podcast. Um, he's got a course available already called The Primal Path, which is about fathers raising sons of consequence, and an upcoming course that I know that you're all want to hear about called Preaching in a Secular Age, which we're going to talk about during our interview. So welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, Pastor John Tyson. What's up, mate? Thank you so much for having me on. Man, that was a long read. Um, it's exhausting. Well, to that read. Was, yes, it's pr probably unnecessary. You could have said, <laughs> John's here, folks, let's chat. <laughs> but I mean, like, I'm almost nervous about even leaving things out. Um, you're a, a prolific guy, and thank you for uh, your time. We're glad that you're here. No so, worries, mate. Today, so we're recording this on the day is Wednesday, the 3rd of June, um, and there's a lot going on in the world right now. I mean, did you even know what day it was? I forget what day it is all the time. Oh yeah, I had a I had a rough idea. I had a rough idea. Without even like, without even Sundays happening on Sundays, I think that's even a disorienting thing. I'm just constantly. I've never I've I've never been happier about um, Sundays are going right now. I used to preach five times live every Sunday, and now I'm doing once on a Thursday, and I miss the people. I definitely miss the live element, but it has been nice to not uh, sort of exhaust myself physically like that. I miss it a bit too, but it's been a nice break. Yeah, of course. I've, I found though that it's just like every day I wake up and I'm like, oh, what day is today? Is it's Wednesday? Is Thursday? Who knows? Yeah, they do. They do blow together. They do blow together. Well, on, the, on this day anyway, like like from, for us in Ireland, it's on day 84 of lockdown. Do you know what day it is there? Um, we've all been locked down. You know, it's, it's, no, it's so funny. I mean, my, my reality has shifted again. It, I've gone from what was pre-COVID to what is COVID, even though my entire family had COVID, it's now like Floyd time, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm like on day seven or eight of Floyd time and everything that was related to COVID feels like it was a lifetime ago. Yeah. I, it's just, cr just, just crazy. Yeah. It's been 84 days since, since lockdown happened. And then it's been eight days since, since, um, yeah, uh, George Floyd. So yeah, you suffocated by police officers eight days ago, and each of these things have just changed um, the world, but specifically the U.S. and being felt very severely and strongly in, in New York City. So, yeah, just want to acknowledge that. Like, we're not going to be—I don't think we're going to talk about it too much in our interview, but it just seems tone deaf to not even acknowledge these huge realities. Um, I think that through this conversation, though, hopefully, it can be encouraging to teachers and preachers to be able to apply God's truth to whatever circumstance they find themselves when they listen to this. Yep. Um, all right. So I've been talking a lot. Um, hey, John, what I often ask guests to help us get to know them a little bit more is um, what, what's the first time that you ever like preached a sermon? When's the first time that you taught the Bible in public? Uh, I was 17 and it was at our youth group. They used to do a night called Young Guns. 
and I was a new Christian and young guns night and they had two preachers and uh, I preached my first sermon. I was, I was so deep into surfing at the time and uh, the, the talk was on ask, seek, knock. And it was all on uh, this epic. My, my car was, I had a VW combi van, uh, camper van. And my whole talk was on like trying to find the perfect wave and not giving up until we had like knocked at all the beaches. So that was the, that was the first time I preached. And I tell you a moment that marked me before that, which is a moment of note in my life is which led to me being asked to preach for the first time. I shared my testimony at a youth camp. And while I was giving my testimony, the youth pastor stopped the whole meeting and said, John, when you spoke, people listened in a different way. And I just want to mark this moment. I think God's hands on your life to teach the Bible. I just want to pray for you. And so the whole camp prayed for me. And that was like really the identification of a call that I did not see in myself. I was, I was so deep into prayer and intercession at the time. That was like the great drive of my life. And then someone just saying, I think there's a call on you to preach. And then that pastor basically opened the door for me to preach. And so he would let me give my testimony before he preached. He's one of Australia's most famous pastors, a guy named Russell Evans, leads a church called Planet Shakers. So yeah, it was the identification of a gift that opened the door when I was uh, 17 years old. Wow. And, and so that, that first teaching that you did, the Ask, Seek, Knock um, surfing story, do you feel that it lived up to the hype of being called out as a future teacher and preacher? I remember at the time just thinking... <laughs> I was born for this. Really? I mean, yeah, I mean, I just, at the time, I just, it was such an honor culture. It was such a culture of affirmation. It's, it's, um, it's so hard to articulate. My son, who's a, an amazing godly young man, he was asked to preach at his youth group in a very, that was at Hillsong MIC. He was asked to preach in a very similar environment. And it just, and it was just such an environment of affirmation and calling and people wanting to release young people's destinies. And, uh, I just remember thinking what had happened. I had felt the power of God's word change my life. It just changed me. And then I remember, um, thinking, God, if this happened in me, maybe God could use me for that to happen in others. So that was just like, it lived up to the hype for me. Man, uh, this, th this is my frequent opening question. And so often people say, oh, it was terrible. It was awful. I mishandled the text. I, I was so nervous. Um, it's, it's refreshing to hear someone say, yeah, I was born for this. I was made for this. It's hard to understand how the word of God is received in different theological traditions because that has so much of a say as to what happens when you're in the pulpit. If I was in a very conservative Presbyterian church with a, like you did not properly pass out that Greek verb, I would have been terrified. I was in an environment of exhortation, not um, exposition. And so they just wanted to hear the word of God on fire in a young man's heart, just exhorting people into the presence of God. And so that was a very life-giving environment. And when I, I ended up leaving that church, when I left that church, I went to a John MacArthur cessationist expository preaching church. All the pastors went to master seminary. And I sat on the front row at that church the first time I heard someone preach expository preaching. And it was uh, from the book of Hebrews on why Jesus was better than Melchizedek. And I just sat there weeping. I literally felt my inner man being nourished. I felt the word of God build my heart. 
And I remember thinking, if I could keep the passion of the Pentecostals with this kind of preaching from the text, I, that, that would be the thing. And so that those are the two great things that have marked me. I still read MacArthur every time I prepare a sermon, you know, so. Yeah. Oh man, what, what a contrast. And there's a, a phrase that I've, I've heard you say a few different times before. Um, you talk about theology that cannot be dismissed and power that cannot be denied. And so it sounds like you've experienced both the power and the theology in two separate entities. And yes, and then I, I've spent the re- most of my life being misunderstood by both sides as I have tried to merge them into what I perceive to be biblical preaching. I mean, isn't, isn't that Paul? Isn't that Paul's vision of preaching? I mean, it's like uh, 1 Corinthians 1. That's his whole thing. And uh, so anyway, yeah, I've, I've tried to do that. And I think people like um, Artie Kendall, somebody I think has deeply inspired me in that, Uh, There was a pastor in Nashville of a church. Gosh, what Belmont church in Nashville, Stephen Mansfield. I don't even think he's a pastor anymore. But when I was 23, I heard him preach the first time. And he was the smartest guy I'd ever heard who literally moved in sort of like words of knowledge in the prophetic. And it, I just never, I'm still to this day trying to be like those sermons I heard in my early twenties, mastery of the text, breathtaking analysis of culture. But instead of at the end of it saying, amen, he would say, come Holy spirit. And then the glory would break out. And it was just, I was so deeply marked by him. I've only met him once. He's probably never remembers it. And he has no idea the powerful impact he's had on my life. Oh man. Well, I, yeah, I, I love that. And, and that the first time I heard that phrase, I was walking to my office, listening to a, a podcast, I think through your Nehemiah series or something, but you use that phrase, theology can't be dismissed and power that cannot be denied. I actually stopped and like pulled out my little notebook and, and just, and wrote it down. I was like, that's what I want. And that's what I, that's what I'm aiming for this, this fusing together of, of word and spirit and you know, our generation, we're not the first people to try this, obviously. Um, we're part of a long biblical tradition. Um, but for some reason, they tend to be um, polarizing. You're, you're a word church or you're a spirit church. And yeah, I, I love to see this overlap of, of them coming together. What do you think powerless theology comes from? Or rather, what does powerless theology look like? And then the contrasting question is, what does theology-less power look like? Uh the the worst of Pentecostalism and the worst of evangelicalism. <laughs> uh, no, like I, I don't say that. Um, I, I don't say that um, facetiously. I mean, a, a Pentecostal without the word is going to be talking about, you know, dreams, visions, impressions, thoughts. It's just going to be subjective. And the evangelical who thinks because I understand systematic theology and because I can break down a text, therefore I am walking intimately with God. Uh, it's like it's Ephesians 2. I mean, I mean, Jesus himself says to the church that he warned. I mean, so Ephesians 2, Acts 20, Paul warns the Ephesians elders, be careful because wolves are coming inside and out. There will be theological and doctrinal threats to your church. Uh, In Revelation 2, it says, you've tested those who claim to be apostles, but they're not. And Jesus says, but I'm going to remove your church from its lampstand if you don't love me. It's like, I appreciate the doctrine. I love that. But if you don't love me, I'm not interested in just right doctrine. And uh, so 
I think we have to see like, what is it that God wants from us? It's not just, am I true to the text? It's like, what does God want from my life from this text? And there's a difference between closing the gap. So yeah, I mean, just think people being pushed over and people falling around and and speaking in gibberish and think of cold, hard, dead orthodoxy. Now it doesn't have to be that there's obviously that's a continuum and people fall all over the continuum. Um, there's obviously very many of my reformed uh, friends in New York, wonderful, godly people, love God's word, love theology. Um, maybe another way to characterize it is like this. This is the way that I view it in my mind. You find that people tend to fall into categories of faithfulness or faith. And faithfulness, the faithfulness is like Andy Crouch, deeply thoughtful, not interested in hype you know, profound, weighty. And then the faith people who are like, this is what God's word promises and we've got to go after it and step out on it. And I often find that is the continuum most people like. So, you know, like the the traditional conservative Bible teacher is often about faithfulness to the text, to God's word, rejecting lies, the spirit of the age. The Pentecostal is about this God that we love and know from his word. We want to see him, not just his word, the person manifest his presence in the world today. And I've got to tell you, I fall more heavily in the faith component than I do the faithful. So my whole goal is like, I remember one hearing this once, like you've got to have a metaphor from your life. I think this was Leonard Sweet. And he said his metaphor was a child on a swing going as far and as high back as they could to take the momentum, to, to lunge them as far forward as, forward as they could with that momentum. But you only see the photo of the moment at the kid in the middle of the swing. But you can tell the hair is back because of their movement and their legs are stretched forward. I've sort of kept that metaphor in my heart of like wanting to go back into God's word and biblical theology and church history. But then I want to launch that into a faith filled contending for now, you know, man, what, a, what an image, um, as I'm home these days a lot and we had a swing set in the back, I see my kids on it all the time. So now I'm going to just think of that theology that can't be dismissed power that cannot be denied. And right there in that center. So what caused you to remember, let's say, even that Hebrews passage, that, that first sermon that you ever heard there sitting in the front row, like that's, that was obviously more than 20 years ago and you remember it. What's it like to experience expository teaching for the first time? I mean, I, it was, it was so interesting because I didn't know who Melchizedek was. I was like, I don't know who Melchizedek is. Jesus is better than him. (laughs) And what it did more than anything, this was the gift of it. It didn't make me love the explanation of the text, which I definitely enjoyed. It made me want to uncover the text. It was the gift of like, dear God, if he can do this with five verses, look how fat the book is. How much of this stuff is in there? And I was just like, this is, I want to go to Bible college now. That's the gift it gave me. It was like, I want to go to Bible college, which is ultimately what ended up happening as a result of it. I want to study this book and I want to know the God behind these texts. And I want to know the context of God's mission. And, and then preaching through Hebrews, like you would, you would learn things. And obviously 
it, it's, it's the equivalent of um, trying to have a conversation about terrorism uh, in the early 2000s and not understanding what the Twin Towers are. People could talk about it all day long, but when you understand New York, the symbolic nature of those towers, how they restructured the city, blah, 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 and they chose those to get at the heart of empire. They were pissing the needle. That'll change the way you view and like all of those things, like what? What? I thought honestly, I thought John the Baptist wrote the Gospel of John. I didn't like. I didn't know. I was like the only John I knew was John the Baptist, and uh, so all of those things. So it was just like it introduced like paradigm shift, revelation, wonder. That's the gift it gave me. Oh man! And did you miss though those expressions of let's say power or those? Oh, I, I just. Yes, it grieved me, grieved me so deeply. Hmm. If you, and I, it's, I ended up leaving it. I mean, I couldn't stay in it. Um, if you put your hand up in worship at that church, um, one of the elders would tap you on the shoulder and say, please, please lower your hand. Uh, we don't want to distract people from worship. Now, at this point, I'm getting up. I'm spending two hours a morning praying in tongues. Okay, so then I go to this church. Yeah. They, they don't have a grid for me. Yeah. And that, that must have been such a, um, a, yeah, a trying time where on the one hand being blessed by what comes from up front, but then not really fitting in, in the pew. Yeah. And then they would let me share. They would let me like at the youth services or whatever. They, they acknowledged the same way the Pentecostals did. John, I think God's, God's calling you to teach his word. I, I we see a preaching gift in your life. So they let me up the front, but every time I did, it was more passion than they knew what to do with, but they loved it because they knew it was sincere. Yeah. But um, they, 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 what they didn't know is how to access it. And that's, that's the thing about the faith component of it. It's like very rarely do I get around the faithfulness side of it and go, I want what you have. I often go, I value what you have. But that's different than like I want, I want that hunger for God. And again, I'm not trying to... Um, create a false dichotomy. I'm just talking about how it landed in my experience, particularly in those early days. Yeah. So then the crazy thing is I went from that into sort of pragmatic American, um, seeker church. That was the next phase of like, yeah. So I was like, I mean, there wasn't Pentecostal preaching or expository preaching. There was practical preaching, you know, it was, and it was another kind of preaching. If you loved God's word, you saw a value for so I didn't dismiss it. I was like hearing Rick Warren in the early days do basically how to preaching, preaching from the Proverbs, giving people a tradition of godly wisdom to live out of as opposed to the way of the world. Mm-hmm. I was like, let me get some of this in here. Yeah. How do I get some of this here in the world? So I, I always tried to sort of take the best and I, I definitely tried not to, which is definitely what I see a, a trap many people fall into self-righteously judge the season they were in before rather than integrate the best of it and do something fresh. I mean, I know why I, I went from basically, I mean, I was very sincere and didn't have language for it. I was, um, I, my early theology was heretical. It was heretical because it was unformed, not in terms of um, the Trinity or the Bible or whatever, but certainly um, in terms of understanding things like the depravity of man 
I was like, man has a completely free will and at any given moment can choose God. I was like, oh, no, I know that. Like, that's been categorically rejected as a heresy. Yeah. So, like, at, at the time, I didn't know that. Yeah, at the time, I didn't understand any of those things. Um, but then I, I swung over to becoming like a five point Calvinist, man. I mean, I was like Lorraine Butler's doctrine of predestination, uh, reformed doctrine of predestination, Burkhoff systematic theology, RC Sproul, like taking RC Sproul shots after I've drunk, you know, everything I can from, uh, the Puritans. I mean, I was so deep into that. And, uh, then I basically came out of, uh, being a Calvinist or whatever, but I understand why something like Acts 29 got so much momentum with basically white youth pastors from suburban megachurches. Mm. Because like you're in a pragmatic environment, there's no theology, there's no depth. Many of them didn't come from that expository tradition. And then when you hear someone who has an answer in a verse for any question you've ever had about anything you like, they're having that awakening experience I had um, just in a different um, setting or whatever. So, But but to not become self-righteous and judge it. That's the key. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in my late thirties. I think you're in your early forties. Is that right? Is this something that you can only arrive at now? Is this something at your 40th birthday? Do you arrive at like, okay, now I'm going to synthesize everything properly. Is there a way for younger people to get this? I mean, I think I was doing it when I was younger. I mean, I think I was like, I definitely had a couple of months of I'm an arrogant Calvinist. And I only know that is because everybody told me that, you know, that wasn't self-reflection. It was like (laughs) external feedback. Yeah. But, um, no, then I, I, I basically, because I loved the Bible, because it brought me to God and I was inviting the Holy Spirit to search me, God would convict me of these things. You are prideful. There's truth to what they're saying. You may be right, but nobody likes you. Those sorts of things. And I was like, gosh, I need, I need the fruit of the Spirit as much as I need right doctrine. So I, I do think... Um, it's, it's, it's separate. It's, it's sort of around psychology and stage development, which is very different, but I definitely think there was some psychological stuff in there that because of basically my family dynamics enabled me to process that in a healthy way, rather than like feeling like I had to war against the previous thing that I believed. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that. It's, it's a pity that cage stage is nearly, it's nearly predictable and it's, it's striking when someone does not go through a cage stage. Um, yeah, uh, you, you might have heard me talk about before. Uh, um, uh, M. Scott Peck, who's a psychologist, he, he's got this very simple thing, uh, the four stages of development, the basic spiritual development that basically match onto um, human development. So you have the infant, the child, the adolescent, and the adult. And I basically, because it's how my mind works, put them into something that you can remember. But um, the infant is a consumer. They add no value. Maybe cuteness value, but they're draining you of the sleep. They're not making, they're not doing the dishes. Then you have uh, the child. The child is black and white. They need certainty. The world is a dangerous place and it is only clarity that makes them feel safe. Then the adolescent has to challenge. Everything is about pushing boundaries and discovery of the self. And the adult, if someone moves into adulthood often believes what the child believes, but they do it to contribute and they hold it with mystery. It's the childlike spirit, not the, that's the childlike spirit, not the childish spirit and um, how God takes us through that journey. So I, you know, even having a paradigm like that, but you know, my son turns 20 next week, my daughter's about to turn 18. I've, I've watched my kids in all of this. And instead of like telling them to be adults or 
pushing them to resort to childlike thinking. I just let the process work out. And I do that with my often with friends on a theological journey. And I try and so little, I remember being in that stage and I try and sow seeds to challenge their thinking, you know, so I'll, I'll let them just lambast me about how man centered I am because I, I don't believe in blah, 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 blah. And then I'll say, you know what, when I was sort of, really passionate at the same stage you are. And I always affirm, I love your passion for the Bible. I love your heart for doctrine. It really matters. Never lose it. No matter what happens, keep this part of it. I'll say, I remember once uh, what A.W. Tozer said when a young man was in Bible college and came to him and he said, is it Calvinism or Arminism? And A.W. Tozer gave him this frustrating answer. And it was basically, it doesn't matter. Go to the woods and seek the living God. And I've, I've tried to sow thoughts like that, which is, yeah, you know what? I, I always try, I always use the best of a tradition to critique the tradition rather than use another tradition to bash the tradition. So, you know, I'll try and use Calvin when people are not acting in a godly way, or I'll try and use Piper when people are acting arrogantly um, to, to exhort them from in the thing that they can accept rather than trying to do something else. But that's more about persuasion. One of the, one of the books I love, um, uh, had this concept that I've just been thinking about so much, which is basically the sacred decor. Um, we communicate on various levels, but at the heart of every, uh, any human system, theological, philosophical, whatever, there's a sacred core, which means until you acknowledge and respect it, you're never going to persuade somebody around it. And so you have to with honor touch the sacred core before persuasion can happen in any way. And most people assault the sacred core and wonder why they get resistance rather than acknowledging it and then moving towards a conversation. So, And this, this sacred core that you want to acknowledge, it's, it sounds like though this is useful for inter-Christian denominational squabbles, but I think in your preaching too, you also address the sacred core of, of secular New York City as well. Which, which oh, is, yeah, man. This, yeah, oh, yes. So that is core like, there, isn't there? Well, and there's a sacred core of every group. Like, you know, what's the, like, why do we fail in our conversation with the LGBTQ community? Why do we fail? We don't acknowledge the sacred core. You don't have to affirm what they believe to acknowledge the sacred core. And the sacred core is this, for, I think for, for a queer person, is that their sexuality can change or be prayed away by evangelicals. You can pray the gay away. And the, the, the fear that you think you can make me different I like I've it's seemed like it's done so much damage. And so rather than saying God can change you around your sexuality, the question you have to ask is, is what God wants from you to change your sexual orientation? And that may make people uncomfortable, but I would say the Bible doesn't exist to make gay people straight. The Bible exists to make dead people alive. We are all coming to Jesus from various cultural positions and dispositions. My message is Jesus Christ will change you in ways that are way more threatening than your orientation if you really want to call him Lord. And so, you know, so it's, it takes a lot more nuance than that. And now we're at a point of such uh, sort of like critical theory has so dominated our cultural conversations that you, you, that doesn't even work like it used to anymore. Um, 
However, it is on an interpersonal level, on a pastoral level, and in preaching to a congregation, not to the internet or to a podcast, it is still a very important way of modeling humility and civility in a dialogue. So, this You're really teeing me up to ask this next question. Are there any courses available that teach someone how to do that, how to preach to a secular age? You know, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've got something that I'm working on. It's almost finished. It's called Preaching in a Secular Age. And it is about a combination of yeah, biblical exegesis, cultural analysis, spirit empowerment, and persuasion. And how do you put those things together? And so it's basically... It's, you know, I've, I've had such a privileged life, mate. I mean, it's like, I feel like Forrest Gump uh, when he's just wandering around in all these scenes. I got mentored by Keller on how to preach and went through his, you know, before he was Tim Keller and he was just Tim Keller, the pastor in New York. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that changed my life, the gospel centered stuff and how to view the Bible and repenting of religion. I just remember drinking this in and then, I went through Reinhard Bonnke's School of Fire, 50 healing evangelists to change America. And, you know, like, so I've just had input from all of these people in different stages. And um, it doesn't mean I've been able to take what they've taught me and and done it well, but uh, I have consciously tried to take the best of what I've learned. and, And I have the gift of having preached almost every week for 15 years in New York city. Mm. And so that audience is very, very different. And what assumptions people are bringing in very, very different. Yes. So the goal is to basically for people who, and by the way, the whole world is New York is nowhere near as distinct as it used to be because the world's been flattened through social media and uh, shared media outlets where many of there is still difference because our context does shape things, but it's, it's similar pattern of thought across the world. And so it's not just that it works in secular places, but it does help people understand those particularly feeling like my preaching is not connecting and it's true and it's faithful to the text. So why is nobody doing what it says? I'm trying to close that component so that the, the, the seed meets the soil, you know? Yeah. Uh, You you mentioned, yeah, someone can be so faithful to the text and really be bringing God's word, which we believe has power. And yet it, it almost can be like um, bullets off of Superman's chest sometimes because it's, um, it's, we're, we're answering questions that people aren't asked. We're sorry. We're, we're answering questions that aren't being asked any longer, or we're making offensive assumptions about the people that are listening. So I, I, I value that. And I appreciate that you're putting this together. I, I think one, I remember, I don't know who it was, it was somewhere along the way. Maybe it was um, Wayne Cordero. I don't know. I had him for a two day intensive um, when I was in seminary and a stuff on the Bible just changed my life, rocked me. Uh, it was so simple, but it was so profound. Um, I think he said, no, I think it was actually, yeah, I think it was, it was the, the master, the master starts with a student. The teacher starts with the text and the difference. If, if the goal is like, how do I communicate this to you? You don't start with, here's what it says. You start with where are you at and then how do I get this to you? And there's a ton of um, communication research that shows that that's basically true. And so like whenever, you know, 
And, and again, I even feel torn on that because does that mean that Paul's like, you know, I've declared the whole house, the whole uh, council of God to you through tears. And yet if you only teach to what, where people are and what they want, they will never mature. But if you only preach what people need to mature, you will lose them along the way. And so you have to find that tension points. And my, my whole goal is in many ways to make people like have that experience I had, which is like, wow, I never knew the text said that. I want to dig and find it for myself. I'm trying to create hunger for, for further personal study rather than establish myself as a subject matter expert. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and I think you're right too. Like there, there is a, the earth is flat or the earth has flattened, you know, whereas you're in this, what used to be a, a city that would be decades ahead of everyone else, but now it's maybe what a year or two out perhaps. Um, so I think, yeah. And yeah. it's, it's, it's more, it's, it's like, I just saw, I just saw this, like this would be an example of the way it plays out locally. I just saw a stat that uh, 20% of New York city is LGBTQ uh, self-identified. Okay. So we're talking one in five people, whereas like in, in Nashville, that may be 4% or something like that. You feel, so even if it thinks the same way, the way of like living that on the ground and ministering that is, is different, but that, that thought it's a shared patterns of thought for sure. Wow. Okay. Well, so that's some kind of like some big high level thing. Um, if, if it's okay, can I ask the next question a bit more on the ground? Um, what does your like weekly sermon rhythm look like? I realize too, it's not on Sunday anymore. You're not preaching on Sundays, but, but week in week out, uh, what do you, what do you do to prepare to preach? I mean, I'm, I'm like, it, it, it honestly depends on the week, man. I mean, I'm a functional pastor. I'm not a teaching pastor. So there's definitely moments where I'm like, Lord God, please give me something. You know, I'm preaching my devotions with two hours prep. That definitely happens. I do have a structure and process that I go through, which is, um, again, part of the course. But, you know, the big, the big part is like start with, I always start with the text, but my approach to the text, I think MacArthur said this too, read it through like 10 times before you even try and make any sort of like try and do anything with it. So start with the text, not the commentaries, sit with it. And I'm trying to get basically a sense of it, um, a sense of the spirit of the text. You can call this authorial intent. You can call this whatever you want, but I'm just trying to, I'm trying to feel it. And I'm trying to let the Holy Spirit speak to me about uh, the text. So, you know, I'm preaching, I'm preaching tomorrow on Elisha and Elijah, and it's a kind of sermon I almost never do. It's basically, um, it's points from a narrative of a life. I'm just sitting in that narrative, trying to feel it so that it's meaningful. Why did God tell us this story? He's not just like, by the way, this happened. There's a point to it. So start with the text, then move to the commentaries and then uh, go from the commentaries to like when you get to non-heretical ground, like, okay, I think I'm, I'm like doing biblical justice to this text. Then you have the, dis then you have the discerning privilege of what to highlight in that text for your people in that time. And so then I start so I, so I have three documents. I have what I call the blank page, which is a brain dump. Then I have rough thoughts where it's basically all the commentaries under the verses as I get it out. And then I have a thing I call tight outline. And then I, I basically get this down to what I'm going to preach out of all of that research. And then I, I basically add the layers to it. Like I have a six point checklist of, of what I try and put into every sermon 
that I literally go through to basically, is this in, this is my voice. So this is, if, if it's Haddon Robinson is, you know, he talks about uh, preaching through personality. This is my personality component. So I have six, six things I want to be in every talk. And then I try and figure out where do I shove this in? I'm going to shoe hold this. And I often get critiqued in my preaching by great preachers. They're like, it felt like you shoe hold that in. I was like, I had to. It's a part of what I do, man. Sorry. It didn't fit cleanly. So I, I ran it. But uh, as I, sometimes I put that in the uh, application or whatever. And, and these six things, are they available in the course or do you want to yeah, give yeah, No, they are. But I was like, one of them now. is I, I try and include a minority theologian or a minority voice. Yeah. No white people notice it, but my minority friends always say, thank you. Mm. I always try and put a woman's voice in. I mean, I've basically worn out Fleming Rutledge. I need to branch out that it's hard to get out of her book on the cross in the crucifixion, man. Um, yeah. And then I try to put a church father in I try hey. and put someone, hey. I, try, I try and put someone from church history to show I'm not making this up. You didn't just make this up. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And there's a couple of others too. So, um, okay. Hey, you know what? Time has just flown. I, I glanced at the clock and realized, uh, we're, we're at the end of this nearly, um, a final question, if I may, you spoke about how other people were, are giving you feedback on, on your message. Other people are telling you, oh, it sounds like you shoehorned that in, or you crammed that in. Uh, do you have like an official sermon review process where you facilitate or elicit um, critique on your messages? Yeah, I do. Um, so number one, I'm married. <laughs> so, you know, that's the best feedback. Uh, when your wife lets you know that didn't work like you think it worked or that worked for men, but you lost half the room. Um, yeah, I do. I have a, a preaching template um, that basically critiques, you know, like a bunch of stuff. I have a preaching coach um, that I went and got and uh, it's African-American, African-American man named Dr. David Ireland, master, master. Mm. And uh, so he's spanking me pretty hard right now. It's really encouraging, but I'm just like, yeah, so he has a form. I, I go through the form and then um, I, I submit this and he looks at it. Um, yeah, but I, I basically have um, yeah f- feedback from other teachers in our community and um, it's like it's very, very painful. I don't like to do it. Now I'm watching myself, but I would listen to myself and I would take this evaluative lens. So like if my, the sermon I preached last week, I gave four sermons on one day on, on four different topics. I was super tired. Um, but after I gave the sermon to our church, uh, which was called that you may pray, it was from one Peter four, seven. Uh, when I got done with the talk, it was 50 minutes long. I was like, that talk for the internet was 15 minutes too long. I knew it because of the process. I was like, it lagged in the middle. The points, be sober-minded and be alert, were too similar for me to break them into two 10-minute chunks. I could have done both of those in 10 minutes because they're uh, similar ideas. But I was so exhausted, I didn't have the capacity to go back. And so sure enough, when I watched myself preach with my family on Sunday morning, I literally watched them start to fidget and zone out Oh. And when I talked about now you may pray, I knew they would jump back in and sure enough, they sort of like zoned back in. So yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to get better, man. I'm trying to get better. And um, the number one piece of feedback I get is you speak too quickly and there's too much content in your talks. And so I'm trying to speak more slowly and find other outlets to take the content that I wanted to put into the talk and do something with it. Hmm. 
Mm. And mm. so what, what I did for the last series, we taught through the fruit of the spirit. I did daily devotions with the bonus content. Like here's the stuff I left out and just turned them into daily devotions. Um, I'm trying to find creative ways to do stuff like that. The other, the other thing I'm continually trying to work on is, you know, like, so I am a high school dropout. I'm staggeringly undereducated and, but I'm intellectually curious. And so I, I definitely read more than a lot of folks. Um, and so people always say like your teaching's too academic or it's too, I don't know, like they're just basic. It's too conceptual. It's too many ideas. And, and I'm like, I'm not trying to be like that. That's how my mind works. That's how I researched and thought and studied this week. And I used to reject that. But now again, I've been a teacher, not a master. So the question is like, how do I get the core of this in a way that you take it into your life? And so that's one of the big things I'm working on right now. And then, like I said, I'm trying to figure out, is it like bonus podcast? Is it a blog? Is it a weekly email? Is it a pastoral update? Because the stuff I've left out is good and will help you in the same way that a 50 ounce steak is good and will help you, but you can't eat it in one shot. Right. Right. Um, well, that's week the big after thing. week after week. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to figure that out. So, yeah, sometimes editing can be the, the greatest act of, of love that you give to somebody is you you cut out something that you enjoyed and that brought life to you, but you leave yeah, it totally. out to make it something that's presentable or digestible at least. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I really, really appreciate your time. Um, so there's not a release date for the Preaching in a Secular Age. Oh, it's just course, got pushed there? back a little bit, mate, because of the current crisis. <laughs> because of the end of the world, yeah. The, yeah, the, sec the second crisis. The next one's going to be an economic crisis that comes after this, and it's like... Yeah, perhaps um, followed by a yeah, health crisis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, what a year. So, yeah, I mean, it'll be out sometime in June, and I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to pre-record it um, or if I'm going to basically have 20 people on, uh, week by week on a zoom call and then actually like make it more interactive. So I'm just like, I've got the core contents done. I'm just trying to figure out what's the best format. And, um, again, the challenge is if I do it, um, live where it's deeply interactive is like, I don't have a ton of pastoral emotional energy to, you know, like, it's pretty demanding right now. So I'll, I'll figure it out, but trust, yeah. I'll put it out there. You'll see it. You'll see it on the, uh, the and we'll do what we can to, to, to hype it as well. Yeah. The, the listeners to this podcast, I think we're your target audience. Um, okay. Yeah. Hey, great. Thank you. I appreciate all that. Care, all we care. Well, that's not all we care about, but we want to grow in our personal study and our public proclamation of God's word. And I think that this can be a valuable resource for us. So, yeah. And, and again, I, I definitely, I'm not for everybody like Tim Keller's for everybody. I'm not for everybody. There's a, there's, um, and I definitely have room to grow and I'm not an expert, but I do have a lot of experience in a certain dynamic that can, can, you know, can be one of those voices that out of the 20 that shape you that can help in a certain niche. So if that is helpful for people, you know, I'll be glad to put it out and hopefully, more people become followers of Jesus and are conformed to his image through it. So excellent. Well, thank you very much. I do. I do know you have the next uh, appointments coming up, so I appreciate your time and, uh, yes, no worries. Been, mate. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yes. Thanks, man. Well, once again, thanks so much to John for a, yeah, really thoughtful and uh, very helpful conversation. Uh, thanks to you for listening all the way, all the way to the end. 
Hey, so here's something just to remind you of. So he mentioned the preaching to a secular age course. And as was said at the beginning, uh, that is kind of um, reshaped and retitled to the art of teaching. And in the show notes of this episode, there's a link to the website where you can get connected to the masterclass. And then there's some East Coast and West Coast uh, conferences as well. And also in the interim, coming up in the month of February, um, our uh, training event is taking place. So the Expositors Collective is a growing network of pastors and leaders and lay people, and we're here to equip and to encourage and to mentor the next generation of Christ-centered preachers. Uh, We do so through this weekly podcast, but mostly through our two-day intentional training seminars, um, which are like highly interactive. We specifically don't call them conferences because a conference is where you go. And listen, guys, that has their place, you know. It's where you sit in a seat and you listen to somebody uh, give uh, an address. Um, Ours are training seminars or workshops uh, because it's highly interactive. Uh, You'll be assigned a group leader or a mentor. And together in a small group, You'll be listening to like focused addresses from the stage, uh, very specialized on sermon preparation or delivery, homiletics, hermeneutics, uh, Christ-centered preaching. And, And then after those talks are over, with your group, you process and work through it together. Uh, These workshops have been quite literally life-changing to many uh, preachers and Bible teachers. And our next one is taking place in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, February 18th and 19th. And uh, it's an interactive seminar. You're invited. Uh, So check it out, expositorscollective.com for this one. Southern California, Orange County, Costa Mesa, California. Uh, So I would invite you to check that out. And if you're not subscribed to this podcast, uh, I really hope you would, uh, because we have uh, great content every Tuesday. And usually it's brand new content. But in the month of December, we've been reheating these leftovers. I have a feeling you don't mind. And and next week, we have an interview that was done between uh, Nick Cady and Cody King. Uh, We had specifically been requested to focus more on bivocational preachers. It's it's all good and well to hear from those who are full-time and are able to devote hours upon hours to sermon research and preparation. Uh, Cody speaks with Nick Cady uh, about uh, what it means to be working 40, 50 hours a week as a cable guy while also preparing to preach at a church that he is planting and is pastoring. Uh, Some real great practical advice about time management and also just the way that we are to look at this task that God has called some of us to, to preach and to teach his word. So I'm going to leave you with a preview clip of the next episode. And I hope that this conversation and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. Here's Nick and Cody. 
when I was uh, planting Redemption, um, we, you know, I, I'm working for uh, for Comcast as a cable installer, um, and I'm literally the cable guy, you know, going into people's houses. So I'm installing phone and internet and TV and security systems and you know doing all those kinds of things. Um, and the job is is really demanding. Um, I gotta be at work at 7am and I literally don't know when I'm going to get off. And so, uh, daily I worked minimum of 10 hours. So I I worked 10 to 12 hours every single day. Um, and, uh, sometimes six days a week. So doing that and then trying to, I'm going to plant a church and I'm going to have a marriage and I'm going to have four kids. Like where does, where does all this time come from? And, And I remember people asking me the question, you know, what do you, how do you do this? And I, I guess I, when it, it really comes down to it, I point to it's got to be the grace of God. I, I look at it and say, God made me capable to do things in that time with the time that I had. Um, and so that's God's side. That's the, the miraculous God coming through side. The other side of it, though, I think is discipline. That's the other aspect. It's, it's like 1 Corinthians 9, I think, where Paul says, you know, I beat my body and make it my slave. I think there's a big part of what we do as Bible teachers and Bible preachers that has to do with discipline. You, you've just got to work some disciplines into your life. Um, and so, um, you know, for me, I had to figure out ways to put study time in. Because I couldn't work a 10-hour day, go home and, and neglect my family and say, I'm doing this for the Lord. That's ridiculous. So I've got to figure out time to, to study for that. And I also can't show up on Sunday and say, well, I just didn't have time. You guys are going to get whatever half-baked ideas that happen to come out. And I'm going to ramble for an hour. So my, my friend told me that he went to a church where the pastor was bivocational. And he said that uh, every now and then the pastor would run out of time to prepare his sermon. And they would just have uh, all worship Sunday. Oh, wow. And he said that soon after that started, uh, there began to be a lot of all worship Sundays. Like it was like, <laughs> this is oh, now planned. once a month to Yikes. like three times a month. Yeah. I don't think that that's wise. Yeah. Or, uh, I mean, if the Holy spirit directs you to do that, that's one thing, but just saying, I didn't feel like studying or I think the guy was slammed, but clearly yeah. you were pretty slammed for sure. 60 hours sometimes yeah. a week. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you do when you're doing that? Well, so, you know, uh, one of the things that really comes to my mind as you're saying that is first Corinthians chapter four, uh, Paul says in there, um, let a man so consider us as stewards of the mysteries of Christ, right? That's what it says in verse one. And then verse two says, moreover, it's required that stewards be found faithful. Yeah. Faithfulness is the requirement. So, God knows my schedule. God knows my time. God knows how much I have to give. God knows my mental capacity. He knows when I'm exhausted and I open the Bible and I read it and the words literally don't make sense, which is by the way, a bad time to write notes. Don't, don't write notes when you you don't really even understand what you're reading. Um, but you know, he understands all those things and there is a miraculous element by which we've got to rely on the Lord to make up for that. But I can't use that as an excuse for my lack of discipline or my my unwillingness to be faithful. 